You're listening to What She Said with Candace Sampson, a podcast for Canadian women about Canadian women. A mansplaining free zone, What She Said is here to empower, educate, and entertain you. I'm not a big believer in superstitions like getting seven years of bad luck if you break a mirror or thinking that a rabbit's foot will bring you good fortune. But as Michael Scott famously said, I'm a little stitious because I definitely believe that bad luck comes in threes. I've experienced it and so has my next guest. Natalie McLean is a tour de force in the wine business, but even the most accomplished individuals can't escape life's inevitable challenges. Natalie is a best-selling wine writer, accredited sommelier, and an award-winning author. However, her journey hasn't been without its fair share of obstacles. In her latest book, Wine Witch on Fire, Rising from the Ashes of Divorce, Defamation, and Drinking Too Much, Natalie shares her inspiring story of overcoming adversity, rebuilding her life, and finding love along the way. In today's episode, we'll dive into Natalie's experiences with the end of her 20-year marriage, the challenges she faced in the wine industry, and her thoughts on responsible wine consumption. We'll also discuss her remarkable journey to self-discovery and the lessons she's learned that have shaped her perspective on love, relationships, and the world of wine. So without further ado, meet the unstoppable Natalie McLean. Natalie, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm really excited to join you today and talk about this book, but I'm more excited to hear about everything that went into creating this book, all the trials and tribulations that you went through. And I came across this quote from Maya Angelou and it said, there is no greater agony than bearing an untold story inside of you. Do you feel that? Wow, Candace. first of all, it's great to be here with you. Thank you for your interest in this book and its message. But yes, Maya Angelou is so wise. I mean, it just, for me, this story that's in the memoir was something that I never thought I would write about publicly. Uh, in fact, I couldn't even look at my journal entries for five years. But this story ricocheted around in my head <laughs> for five years. I had to let it out. And so, yeah, Maya Angelou, absolutely. Thank you for putting it into words, uh, that feeling. I, I can't tell you how much I related to things you said in this book, uh, just from my own personal experience going through divorce. So there's a lot there we can get into. But um, I just want to say, let's break down this podcast by addressing sort of the key themes or the markers mentioned in the tagline of the book, divorce, defamation, and drinking too much. So mm, all the dismal Ds, uh, the publishing <laughs> team said, okay, you cannot have depression, delirium, and destitution. <laughs> Come on, We're not going to be able to sell it. That would have been fun Uh, (laughs) happiest book on earth (laughs) exactly so let's start with divorce because that's I think a lot of women listening to this will obviously relate to it Um, you were blindsided by this I was I was um, for a variety of reasons I mean I'd been married I thought happily for 20 years to my husband we had met in business school and he was a CEO. I had a successful writing career. We seemed to be galloping along side by side. And so it pretty much knocked me off my horse when he asked, demanded a divorce one day. And of course, there's all kinds of little signs that you see when you go back and reflect on a, on a relationship. But at the time, if you're not looking for those signs and signals, it can 
literally hit you out of the blue, which it did. And I wanted to talk a little bit about those signs that, you know, you didn't initially see, but once sort of this came to to light, you saw them. What were some of them? Well, I guess I my assumption was that after 20 years, you settle into a relationship of contented companionship. Um, we had uh, a terrific relationship, a lusty one in our youths. And I thought, well, that's normal. And then you evolve over time. And, you know, we had a child and careers and so on. Um, but there's always a risk that, you know, you can deviate in terms of your perception of the relationship and how you want it to be 20 years in. And so, you know, part of memoir is not just a, like a sort of a, a, a memory dump. It's reflecting and trying to learn from your own story so that also those reflections help other people, perhaps. Um, so now when I look back, I think, nope, uh, there should have been more communication, you know, between us. Um, I shouldn't have made certain assumptions. I mean, it's a marriage is a two-way street, a two-way relationship. But I think it's really important as the person writing about it to take a lot of personal responsibility. And um, because I think, you know, if you if you want to go into another relationship, you don't want those same patterns to emerge again. And I was fortunate to find someone else. And I was worried, um, there's lots of therapy sessions in this book, so you get lots of free therapy. <laughs> but uh, I, I said to Miranda, my therapist, I said, I'm worried I'm just going to meet, an, you know, be attracted to another man who's exactly like my ex-husband. She said, you won't. You're a different person now. Um, so you're going to be looking for someone different. Um, so that, that was reassuring, and that is what happened. But I think you have to go through that processing of the relationship, your responsibility as to why it broke down, and so that you can heal, move on, and, and be the person you want to be in a new relationship. I, I, that resonates with me in a big way, that you know, really doing the work, knowing what part you played in the collapse of your marriage. Um, and that was my fear, was that I would immediately just seek out sort of same same and I was very conscious in that I don't know if you've ever read the book um it's called um oh I don't even have it here oh you say I haven't ever maybe you should talk to some talk to someone about that one yeah I haven't it is my favorite book and I I can't loan it to you unfortunately because I have so many highlighted passages that are a window into my soul (laughs) it's well loved well loved book no I'm going to get it thank you I'm adding it to my TBR list it it made me laugh and so I I think that that's a really I think that's something that we don't talk about a lot women who go through divorce we talk about you know the lawyers and your children and Mm -hmm. all of that but we don't talk about the work you have to do to to move on after the divorce is over, what's next? What does your exactly. best relationship look like? And it really means that you have to have a lot of self-awareness, I think. You do. And, you know, um, one of my many therapists, I had a, <laughs> we went to couples counseling and then I had an individual therapist. But uh, one of them said, you can live many lives with the same person or the same life with different people. And so that's what I want to avoid, the same life, the same patterns with different people. It's like having a dislocated shoulder that's never properly reset, and so that it heals (laughs) the wrong way. And so just to your point, underlining what you're saying, you you really have to do the work if you if you don't want to get stuck in old patterns. We're going to we're going to move on to defamation in a second, but 
it's worth noting here that your life just didn't fall apart with divorce. It just fell apart in many different ways. (laughs) I really did it up good. Uh, Way to go. Well done. (laughs) Well, I got it all over in one year. So that was was convenient, I guess. But it was the double whammy of both my personal life falling apart and then my professional life, which is the defamation piece, all coming together. That's where I wanted to kind of go with this was what how did it change you i i mean i i again this is not my story but i can just relate to this because i feel that i have changed profoundly yes through the experiences i've gone through what have you noted well you know when you go through personal and professional crises they kind of the situation or the people involved whatever will push you up against a wall and say you know challenge how you think about yourself are you really this person? Are you, you know, did I fail the wife test? Am I really what these online mobsters were saying about me? And, you know, the answer is never clear cut, yes, no. It's always something more, an amalgam. And if you can emerge from those crises, from the fire, if you will, I think um, you become someone different again. You know, in, in winemaking, there's a term called dry extract, and it's Wine, after it's been boiled down to its essence, it's what remains. It's kind of like almost compact, dusty particles of flavor. And I think humans are like that. We have dry extract after life boils us down, whether we've gone through personal or professional uh, troubles or challenges. And you learn, okay, what is at, what is at the core of me? And where? how do I want to build back up again into perhaps something different, stronger, fiercer, deeper, more rooted. I'm going to milk these wine metaphors. Get ready. Um, (laughs) But, you know, it's almost like I wouldn't wish it upon myself or anyone else what I went through. And yet I am who I am because of it. And I'm glad of that, you know, for that. And I'm glad for everyone in my life uh, who contributed to that, whether it was to the trauma or to the healing, because this, this is who I am today. Yeah, I, I like that that way of thinking because you have to acknowledge both sides because yes. both sides got you there. So yes. you have to be equally grateful for both. I, I am. I am yeah. grateful. And I put that right up front in the book. You know, I am profoundly thankful to everyone in this book, even those mentioned in traumatic moments, yeah. um, because I, you know, without them, um, I wouldn't know the depth of my own reserves of resilience of wisdom, of what I'm capable of in a, in a good way. So we can be grateful for them, but that doesn't mean we have to let them off the hook. No. <laughs> Nor do we have to like them. <laughs> so, so let's move on to the defamation part of things, uh, part of this book, because um, there's a lot in here to unpack. And uh, let's start with misogyny, mm. yeah, which is huge, a huge topic, obviously. But let's yes. let's talk about misogyny in the line of work that you do in particular. Right. How did so, that impact you? Um, profoundly. So I sort of make the comparison between the wine world and the restaurant industry. The restaurant industry is far bigger than the wine world. It's more organized, more formalized. It's had a slew of revelations um, of celebrity chefs exposing, you know, sexual abuse or harassment. But in the wine world, we haven't had a lot of that spotlight. We've had a few instances, 
but not a lot. It's The wine industry is far smaller. Like most wineries in Canada and the U.S. and around the world, for that matter, have fewer than 20 employees. Most don't have a, an HR department, let alone a harassment policy or how to deal with these issues. And uh, a lot of the jobs in the wine industry are one-on-one mentorships. So whether you're learning to become a winemaker, a sommelier, or whatever. So that's um, open prime situation environment for abuse. Of course, it doesn't happen in most situations. But when it does, um, you know, it's hard to deal with it. Because if you're a young woman in the wine industry, learning to be a winemaker or sommelier or whatever, you are very dependent on that mentor with whom you're studying for your next job recommendation or referral. It's a huge power imbalance. And it's a very clubby industry. No pun intended, though here we go. It does have a powerful grapevine. And you can be easily blacklisted. Mm-hmm. You know, so misogyny, I think, is easily embedded in the wine world because of its structure, the way it's set up, um, and the way that no one wants to talk about it. Because we have this, Im- outsiders have this image of the wine industry as being, you know, from wine commercials or wine labels. You're either in a castle on a windy cliff or you're sitting on a sunny veranda, sipping on your Chardonnay. Life's good. It's all pretty. You just wander around the vines, you know. But, you know, there's a real business aspect to it. And along with that goes um, power dynamics and abuses of those powers. Do you think some of the issues you've come up against have to do with what some might view as a re- an irreverence towards the wine industry. I mean, you're fun. You talk about, you make jokes a lot. You're not this, uh, what most would perceive as a snobby wine reviewer. You're just uh, down to earth. You're real. Do you think Thank that's you. part of the problem? Sure. Sure. I mean, there's, I think there's a, um, there's lots of things going on. So can you be professional and still have a sense of humor? I think so. Absolutely. I think you don't have to be grave and serious to be taken seriously. I, I think the, the moment, well, science shows us that the, the, the moment after we laugh or we're entertained, we're most receptive to learning, to taking in information, and to remembering it. It's very powerful. Humor is very powerful. And I think especially with a... A subject that can be as intimidating as wine, as complex and vast as wine, you need a little levity. Just as like, like when we're watching a movie, if it's a horror film, not that wine is like a horror film, but you know, you need those breaks emotionally. It's like, oh my God, I can't keep holding my breath here. Um, so you need something to break it up. And I've always had a first person approach to, to writing Um, So it's very conversational. It's very at the kitchen table. It's very much a woman's perspective. And, you know, in the wine industry, lots of change has happened. But the power at the top still remains pretty much all men. If you look at who owns wineries, who are uh, the top sommeliers, all of it, the structure is still, the power structure is still very male. So... And then when you come into the industry as a young woman, um, as a writer in my case, and you start doing things differently, whether it's irreverence or humor or personal point of view, um, that can make some people uncomfortable. 
it makes a whole lot of other people, wine consumers, very comfortable. And that that is always, that's, I kept my eye on that. Like, who am I writing for? It's it's not for, <laughs> for other critics. Um, it's for people like me who want to enjoy wine. So, yeah, absolutely. In the same year you have this divorce, you you are closing out the year thinking, this is good, everything's good. And this, this <laughs> you get blindsided again. So can you just yes. tell people a little bit about what happened there? Sure. So my divorce conversation was at the beginning of the year, and then we go all the way through to December, end of the year, where I'm, as you said, I'm thinking, oh, it's all behind me now with the closing credits, the story ends happily, I've met someone. And then it's just before Christmas, um, and I'm checking email one more time before going to bed. We've had a very festive, very merry dinner. Uh, my mom's up from Nova Scotia. I'm with my partner, my new partner, my son, my teenage son. And um, a Google alert pops up in my inbox. And <laughs> the headline is, Natalie McLean, world's best wine writer or content thief. And my stomach just dropped. I mean, you know, lawyers get disbarred for misrepresentation. Doctors lose their license for malpractice. Writers get their careers canceled for copyright infringement. And we're not talking plagiarism. That's a separate issue. But copyright infringement is, is a serious issue. Um, so I, I went to this large website, click through, and like the text is just zooming in and out and blurring. And I mean... Uh, it, it's hard to describe, but it was a very physical, visceral sensation. I even remembered, I flashed back to when I was nine years old and, and saw the first and only person I've ever seen die, and he was on a motorcycle. My mom and I were driving home from a dancing competition. He was in front of us, went straight up, straight back down on the pavement. That's what came back to me. It was so visceral. And so I, I read the blog post, or the, the article, I had to read it several times to even try to make sense of what they were getting at. And it was only over time that I sort of started to piece it together. But that was kind of the shock that kind of <laughs> the second shock, the bookend shock that finished the year. And from there, how did you start to pick up the pieces? And did you have to almost do the same sort of work with this that you did through your divorce? I did. We, I was then on parallel tracks, kept my therapist very busy. I still see her. <laughs> <laughs> I am a frequent flyer customer of hers. Um, yes. So I kind of had to, well, first of all, you think, what do I say? What do I do? I mean, it's nearly midnight. Everybody's asleep upstairs. And this just, <laughs> it's right there. Um, because, you know, as, as you know, Candace, nothing dies on the internet except your reputation. Mm -hmm. It that will live forever. Um, everything that's been said about you, good and bad, it's all there forever. Um, so I had to stumble out to the kitchen to get some water. I came back. I tried to deep some deep breathing. And I was the first to comment. Um, a lot of people are reading the book, you know, they wanted to scream at me, don't do it, walk away. <laughs> it's like, but, you know, you see it, it's like, Oh my God. Um, so this post was a reaction to 
um, some writers who had, uh, well, one writer who had contacted me about the way I was um, quoting wine reviews. It was a common practice back then. We're talking 2012, by the way. Right. The heyday of aggregators, Huffington Post, Rotten Tomatoes, etc. Places that aggregated reviews. Um, and so I had seen an earlier Google alert with someone quoting my reviews on another website. And I thought, well, I'll start doing that. <laughs> because it provides more than one perspective on this wine, not just my review, but what are other people saying about it? And it must be okay because people are doing it. Wrong, wrong, wrong. Lots of wrong assumptions. Um, but I didn't go to journalism school. I hadn't had any training in any of this. So anyway, this this is what the website was um, blogging about, uh, about my quoting other wine reviews, wine reviewers. And even at that time when this post came out, I ha was already... Um, in contact with the writer who had contacted me and, um, you know, confirming I was changing the format, the way I was quoting reviews as uh, he had requested. But um, what occurred to me about this post is that six people had written it. They had spent a f few weeks, I think, contacting other wine writers about me to comment, but they hadn't contacted me. Mm -hmm. And, you know, at, at the same time, I had to step back and say, that's not an excuse. You still need to take responsibility. But something was just, you know, twigging at the back of my mind. What is going on here? Because, you know, I've already been t dealing with and talking about, you know, how I quote other reviews. Why are they coming out with this now? So I just posted the first comment very neutral saying, you know, I've already been in touch I'm fixing the reviews the way I've been asked to, the way I'm quoting them, the way other websites are quoting them. And I thought that would be that. You know, we'll all just say, okay, let's, yeah, let's go home and call it a day. Well, <laughs> that was just the start. Um, you know, that, that was fuel on the fire. And it just spread to not only websites around the world, but newspapers <laughs> and media. And it just became like a fireball that I had, I had no control over. Uh, yeah, it went viral in the way that you hope nothing does. Nothing would, right? And and yeah. from that experience, though, you then get the piling on of the trolls. Yes. Right. Yeah. And that's I don't care what anybody says. You just never have a thick enough skin for that. No. No, you don't. How did you cope with that? That was probably the most difficult because it, it devolved pretty quickly. Because once I clarified that I was, you know, fixing what they saw as an issue with the way I quoted reviews, there wasn't much left to say about that. So they carried on with um, essentially taking my body part by part apart in public commenting on everything from my hair to my breasts to everything and you know there's no better way to strip a woman of her intellect her reputation than go than going after her body and you know they <laughs> i think they well from what i could see as the comments kept going like there were more than 200 comments on this one post um they were egging each other on, giving each other lots of keyboard courage. And 
bots don't help. Like they, they, they make things worse when bots are commenting. Um, and so it just, it kept going and going. I mean, they had, I don't know, dozens of comments about my, how my hair had evolved over the years. <laughs> it brought back Hillary Clinton's comment to the Yale graduating class. You know, you may not care about your hair, but uh, everyone else does. <laughs> that poor woman, you know, how many times did they comment about her hair and her dress and everything else? It is very much a woman's issue. I don't hear a lot of comments about men's hair and, um, you know, style. Anyway, it just, it kept going and uh, it got worse. They, you know, they started talking then about what they would like to do to me in raw, intimate detail right down to a rape threat. This is insane to me. You are talking about wine <laughs> and you're getting yeah. rape threats. I mean, that's to me mind blowing. Now this is in 2013, roughly? 2012, so pre Me Too, pre Harvey Weinstein, but still not pre decency. <laughs> now you've obviously, you're still very successful You've got a new book out. You have an amazing podcast. You have a newsletter with what three hundred thousand subscribers? Yes. So you have you have come through this. You you are quite successful, but those trolls are still there. Yes. How has that changed from two thousand twelve to present for you? For me, I just learned to ignore and block them, and because at the time, what was happening, Candace, is that I was afraid. I didn't know. What would happen? Would I get sued? Would I lose my livelihood? I mean, I was supporting my, I still support my elderly mother, my son. So I depended on this wine writing to, to actually not just earn my living, but support the people in my life, especially now that I was divorced. And so it was a lot of fear, you know, that I was writing about. And the not knowing was the worst part of it. So now... You know, and I reflect this in the memoir, I know the extent to which they can or can't cause harm. Um, but, you know, I don't, you know, anybody undergoing this, it's not sticks and stones will break my bones. You know, it's the internet, turn it off. But if you earn your entire living online, you can't walk away from it or just turn it off any more than a surgeon can work outside a hospital. You know, it's always there. It's omnipresent. So... You know, anyone undergoing this now, any sort of, you know, cancel culture is alive and well today. Um, it really gives me a deep empathy and feeling for someone going through this because it's, it's not easy to walk away from, even if you don't earn your living online. I mean, online culture is so pervasive today in our society, whether it's social media or websites or apps or whatever, that it's really hard, if not impossible, to get away from it. So, um, and that's why we're hearing about young girls and the problems with Instagram and, you know, tell them to just turn it off. No, all their friends are on it. That's their social <laughs> network. You can't right. just, it's not as simple as walking away. So, I mean, what's changed is that I know the full extent now of what can happen um, with this, this kind of attack. Um, I know what I can do to take measures to keep myself mentally healthy by blocking and not listening 
or not reading their comments. You know, but you're always left, post-trauma, you're always left with some residual fear of, but what if something else happens? Or what if a different thing happens? Or what if something happens when this book comes out? And yet the need to write this book is stronger than my fear of what will happen. Because that the message that's in this book of hope and resilience and justice is stronger for me. I'm more compelled to publish it than not to. Um, you know, what's changed for these trolls? I don't think anything. Some of them are still writing magazine columns. I think there's, I think there's, I would say I've been online for, you know, uh, well, many years, um, and probably probably around the same time as you, to be honest, uh, sort of jumping on. And I, I, anymore, I just, uh, you know, same idea. I don't give them oxygen. I don't reply. I block them. Uh, but that took a long time to learn that kind of behavior. But it's still very upsetting to think that these people are out there, you know, a lot of them are bots, so we can dismiss most of them. But there are people out there who just walk around with this intense hatred of you for no reason except that they came across something you said online. Exactly. <laughs> I think crazy it just, to it me. It really is people who have too much time. But also I think there's also oh, everyone needs to be part of something bigger. And for me something bigger, you know, is this book, right? It's like that's what I can yeah. get behind. But if you don't have something that gives you meaning and purpose, there is some people do find meaning in ganging up and that righteous indignation of like hating the same person or going after somebody. Um, you know, we all we all have to have meaning and, and something beyond ourselves. So for some people, that's it. Well, I don't want to go too far into the defamation because I want people to obviously pick up this book. So we're going to move on to drinking right. too much, which I think so many women are going to relate to this part of the conversation. So it's particularly in light of, you know, everything yes. that's happened with the pandemic. I mean, I, the first day of lockdown, my parents showed up with wine <laughs> and left it on the doorstep. It was two bottles. I recently just had this memory pop up on Facebook yeah. and it was two bottles of wine. And I said, thanks to my parents for dropping off supplies. And then, you know, because a few years later, I said, as it turns out, this was not enough. <laughs> it, was <two> bottles. Yeah. <laughs> it was definitely not enough wine uh, to get us through that. But we've also seen now this sort of sober curious movement and alcohol free drinks are moving uh, are, are moving up sort of in popularity how, so how does this align with what you do now and have your perspectives changed on this um it does align i i didn't try to be on trend but somehow <laughs> what i'm writing now is trendy let's all cut back i mean i didn't go sober i still drink wine and write about it but I had to, that was the third struggle because I used drinking as a coping mechanism both for my divorce and the online mobbing. Um, you know, I, I also come from a family where there is alcoholism. So, you know, my relatives always find it amusing that I write about wine. They talk about a moth flying close to the flame. But while I had always been aware of that family history, I never felt that I had a drinking problem or that I used it as a crutch. But when the double whammy came in that year, I leaned on wine uh, way too much. And I had to work at that as well, cutting back, making that not the habitual um, way that I dealt with my feelings by drowning them. 
I had to do things like, what was the thought before the thought, I need a drink? And was it about enjoyment or pleasure? Or was it, damn, I've had a hard day. I didn't even get through my inbox. Or, you know, another nasty comment, another nasty review. Which was it? And so I started to learn to separate that and to get back to the pleasure of wine, not just the anesthetizing aspect of it. Um, So yeah, and there was lots of other, I sprinkle these tips throughout the book, but you know, I would do things like if I'm opening a full bottle of wine, I pour half of it into a clean, empty half bottle so that I don't feel like Oh, if I leave this till tomorrow, this wine, it's it's not going to taste as good. You know, it's all about not oxyg- uh, oxidating and, and so on. But there's all kinds of things. Alternating a glass of wine with a glass of water, not allowing automatic tip, uh, top-ups in restaurants, ordering by the glass, not by the bottle in a restaurant, lots. I did everything that I could think of uh, technique-wise to really bring it back. But yeah, that now that the pandemic has happened, there's so much online especially as it relates to women and drinking, that I hope this book is helpful. It's not meant, well, it's not a self-help book, but I hope it does help both women and men and and others um, with that issue if they have it. So again, I I went through sort of the same thing. I stopped drinking. I think I quit for 278 days or something like that. And it was just, I just needed a reset with alcohol. Just self-reflection, again, knowing it was too much and I had to, to really review what was going on in my life and what I was using this for. And I did and I think that I've 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 been successful in that. But for you, how did you how did you find a way to talk about this? I mean, you're in you're in yeah. an industry that promotes alcohol, promotes drinking. Yes. So yes. that must have been difficult to find sort of that happy medium. Did you really struggle with that? I did. I did. And see my shtick Uh, for my first two books and before this was all about joking about the buzz of wine. You know, I used to call my 5 p.m. glass of wine mommy's little helper. And, you know, my first book was called Red, White and Drunk All Over, a tipsy search, you know, or a wine-soaked journey from grape to glass. Book two was unquenchable. It's all about the drinking and the buzz. And, um, but now, you know, with this third book, I hope, you know, my drinking habits are not... Um, so much fodder for the jokiness, but will help kickstart a discussion on drinking too much, especially a culture that encourages women to reward themselves with a glass of wine. You know, it used to be Virginia Slims, have a cigarette, they're torches of freedom, ladies. And now it's, you deserve this glass of wine. You know, if, if no one's thanking mom, mom will thank herself with her, her own bottle of wine or rosé. So, but in my profession, it's a double-edged sword because on the one hand, um, while I'm not trying to sell wine, I am recommending it, reviewing it, just as a movie critic or book critic would. But also there's this um, thought in my industry that if you can't control your drinking, you're not a professional because professionals are serious. They only take small sips and tasting. And you know, someone who has a drinking problem in a drink culture is that has a lot of stigma and yet i think that or i know actually that a lot of people are drawn to the wine industry the drinks industry because they like wine and alcohol just a little too much our industry 
according to industry statistics, the, the hospitality industry, which includes restaurants and wineries, has the highest level of substance abuse of any industry. It's easy access. We're, you know, many of us are drawn there because we, it lit something up for us, like sensory-wise. We're fascinated by it, and yet no one wants to talk about it. So that's the other reason I wrote this book, is like, not just for the, the women in the industry and all the rest, but so we can start to talk about it in our industry. It just has such a heavy stigma. It's ridiculous to think as well that it wouldn't be this high. I mean, yeah, it's exactly. The, just the, by the very nature of the industry that you're in, it would seem to me that this would be a problem because we know how alcohol works. It can become addictive. It can become a yes. crutch. And the more you're exposed to it, the more likely you are to use it. So that all makes sense to me. Why we're not, ta- but why we're not talking about it? It's like this mythical guardrail goes up if you work in the industry and you can't possibly get addicted to it. Yeah, exactly. And it's it's the number one socially approved drug. Um, you know, if you have a glass of wine, like there's a, there's a there's even a stigma if you go out sometimes with friends, and if you're the only one not having a glass of wine, if you're with women, it's are you sick? Are you pregnant? Or perhaps you have a religious reason. Or number four, are you, do you have a problem? <laughs> I mean, those all of those are kind of like, how, how about I just don't want to have a glass of wine tonight? That's not very acceptable. And then in the wine industry, it's, it's deemed a professional duty to be drinking and sampling and tasting. Now, there is a difference between tasting and drinking. You don't have to swallow everything. But, you know, when you're out with a winemaker who's come over from New Zealand, you're at a winemaking dinner, there's a point at the evening after you've tasted the wines where everybody starts drinking. And, you know, it's expected. Yeah. So it's, it's just a professional hazard. Let's talk about marketing in the alcohol industry. What are your thoughts on that? So there's traditionally there's been a lot of two different ways of marketing wine, you know, between when men and women. You, you'll see a lot of labels marketed as women, to women as, you know, strut and stiletto and little black dress. Girls night out. Girls night out. You know, we need a reason to drink. Not only are all those labels kind of sexist in the first place um, in terms of their red lips and their high heels and their short hemlines, but it just gives the message that women need either a reason or permission to drink. And I'm all for having fun. I'm all for wearing a short hemline. But the, the message in the marketing is so clear. Whereas if you look at men's brands, Sledgehammer, um, <laughs> you know, there's all these sort of masculine, tattooed, whatever, metal kinds of labels that say, not only is this wine more serious, but also a man doesn't need permission to drink. He drinks because he wants a drink. He's getting together with his buddies and, you know, that's that. You know, and this goes even a level deeper in that there are wines considered to be women's wines or, you know, crassly bitch pours in the industry. Prosecco, Rosé, Chardonnay, um, Pinot Grigio. And then there are the more serious wines, the sommelier selections of Cabernet and Merlot and Shiraz and blends. I've you know I've heard Chardonnay described as a slutty wow. <laughs> or you know floozy whatever but I've never heard a cabernet described as whatever there is no equivalent uh, so it, it's embedded in the marketing in the writing about wine feminine masculine that we describe still wines as this is a feminine wine meaning it's easygoing it's light 
It's not too serious. It's accessible, like a woman should be, I guess. And a, a masculine wind is full body, complex, structured. And even the notion that feminine is somehow lighter than masculine, I think, is something we need to question. Indeed. That's incre- that's incre- it's crazy to me. I actually had not thought of that, but I will admit I am a person who picks out wine by the catchy name. So <laughs> sure, we all do. Like, and I did before I started writing about wine. You know, castle in the middle distance, or a cute fluffy squirrel, or the iguana. But you know, even within women, quote unquote, women's labels, you know, we're either those vixens with the the high heels and the short hemlines. So Vixen's Babes or we're Battle Axes. There are brands called Mad Housewife. And, you know, with corks that say, Mommy doesn't give a damn. And, you know, like, so we're either angry or we're sexy, but nothing in between. Right. Yeah. So this book touches on a lot. And I think even for women who maybe are not going through divorce or, you know, have not dealt with the drinking, there's still lessons in here from going through hardships. What do you want women to walk away with after reading your book? I do want them to know, to all readers, women, and and there are also many good men who've been reading this book and responding positively, um, that, you know, back to that dry extract, that there is something in you when life boils you down to your essence, when you've been through the fire, whether it's personally, professionally, or both, there is still strength and resilience in you. There's something still left, and you can rise again. You can build yourself into something new, something different, something better. Um, it, this, this book, spoiler alert, does have a happy ending. It is about rising again. And I, I hope that that is the message people take away that, you know, and that, I mean, they feel they're less alone. And, you know, we've been there and people, you know, everybody's life looks great from the outside. Great curb appeal. But when you get inside people's stories, you start to see the cracks, cracks that might look like your own in your own life. You know, people may not have uh, had an online mob come after them, but they certainly have felt intimidation, isolation, grief. They may not, they may not even have been divorced, but they've probably felt loneliness or the longing to love. So you with a memoir, with what I'm trying to do with this book, is that you can experience all of those feelings, but through a different story that's not your own, and then to see the journey through it to the other side, that there is hope, and that that here are some ways you can deal with it. But, um, you know, so I hope that's it, because people ask, well, why do you even write about this? You know, so, you know, I felt like at the beginning, I'd be vandalizing my own privacy. But, you know, Glennon Doyle, memoirist, untamed, said, write from a scar, not an open wound. Mm-hmm. And then um, a poet, Thomas Sheeney, I think, said, but why write about it at all? Because somewhere, someone has the same wound, uh, has wounds in the shape of your words. Mm-hmm. And I love that. And that's that's what makes truly people feel... My words were my sutures that tied up two different parts of my life that I thought were separate, the divorce, the defamation, but they were really part of the same thing. And I was able to make a new pattern of meaning by writing about it. And I hope you know, other people can, can take away their own patterns of meaning from it. I agree with you 100%. And I love that you've, you've shared your wisdom in this book for people because your story 
helps somebody else. It's a roadmap for somebody else, right? To I follow so. and, and move through things easier. So I love that you've shared that. Um, Thank you. What's next for you? Because I feel like you probably don't uh, spend too long resting on your laurels before you're thinking <laughs> of the next thing. So what's next for Natalie McLean? Well, I'm focused right now on connecting with wine lovers around the world through my online wine and food pairing classes at nataliemcclain.com. I love those courses. We dive into the real sensory pleasure of wine and food pairing from fast food to fancy gourmet dinners. It's a lot of fun. So I welcome people to, to come to my website and learn more about the courses. I I have my own podcast, as you mentioned, Unreserved Wine Talk, where I interview really interesting people from around the wa- the world of wine, and through their stories, you learn more about it. And yes, eventually, I think I probably will write another book. It won't be a memoir because <laughs> that's I don't need to go through the emotional. You don't again. want anything more memorable in your life. No, <laughs> I don't. No, been there, done that. I've got only one memoir in me, um, but I would love to write another book about the joy, the pleasure of wine, because that's what was part of my healing. I had to reconnect with the vineyards that brought me pleasure, along with the friends who, you know, sustained me and bring my family in and open up to them. I want to talk about those joys, that the pleasures of sharing wine with all of them and how it can bring us into communion and connection, because I think that's what we're looking for. I agree. All right. I, people obviously now know about the podcast, about your website. Where can they get the book? They can get the book anywhere online. You can, all the places, all the major retailers, all the private independent stores. Um, wineries are starting to sell it as well. Physical bookstores as of May 9th uh, in Canada, June 6th in the U.S. and around the world. Um, but yes, you can always get it online. And anyone who wants or who buys a copy, I'm happy to mail them a signed book plate that they can put in their copy for themselves or makes a lovely gift, of course. Um, (laughs) And I also have a free reader's guide that has discussion questions for book clubs, tips on organizing and informal wine tasting with friends, which wines to pair with the book and other books. And they can get that at winewitchonfire.com forward slash guide. All right, excellent. And I'm going to put the link in the podcast notes and I have my copy, Perfect. which uh, Thank you. I love. Awesome. So I'm going to get you to sign it. I'm in Ottawa too, yes. so I'm going, to, yes. I'm going to actually get you to sign this for me. Absolutely, uh, Candice. But Natalie, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been an absolute pleasure and I thank you so much for sharing your story with us. Oh, thank you, Candice. I appreciate you allowing me to talk about the book because it, it's about spreading its message. And uh, thank you for letting me share that with your audience. You do a fantastic job with this podcast. I've been binge listening to it on oh, your gosh. back episodes. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. I love it. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Okay, Natalie, we'll have you back again soon. Thank you. All right. Cheers. Hey listeners, I'm Christy. And I'm Melissa. And this is Buried Motives, where we dig deep into the details of some of the most gruesome dirtbag murderers. She said she enjoyed hurting things that can't fight back. And that is a disturbing view into the mind of a murderer. Such a dirtbag. 
Yeah, that's not even strong enough words. This is totally a recipe for disaster and not to justify whatever is going to happen, but you can totally understand and see how this would be in the works. If you were only to look at what she did later on and not know any of that history, she would appear like off the wall crazy. Oh, 100% because we're not even close to getting to the end yet. But you can just see this pattern and all this kind of stuff developing in her, which is what we're here for. We're digging deep. Join us each Thursday as we unearth the dirt bags that live among us and the motives buried there. Hope you join us as we exhume the truth. Come on a journey like no other, where you will discover many rogues that will lead you to a happier, healthier, and more stress-free life. And the beauty is, you don't need any vacation time for this adventure. The journey will come to you. Join Avery Rich on your very own journey into yoga. Along the way, she will demystify yoga poses and guide you into a yoga posture or short sequence, all in less than 15 minutes. You have nothing to lose but stress. The Journey Into Yoga podcast. It's not for people who like yoga. It's for people who don't like yoga. Follow or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at AveryRich.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.